Today, I want to tell you the story of the lone wolf from Finland. Is that what you were expecting me to say right then? <laughs> Wolves are pack animals like humans, meant to live in community. But there can be times when there's some sort of struggle, a fight, a prideful, selfish decision, maybe a scarcity of food. For some reason, a wolf sometimes leaves the pack and becomes a lone wolf. And as lone wolves have been studied, a couple things have been realized. A wolf will live a lot shorter of a time away from the pack when it's on its own. And what's really interesting to me is that a wolf, a lone wolf, will become less of a wolf the longer it's away from the pack. Notably seen through the fact that they will stop howling. They will stop communicating because they wanna stay off the grid. They realize, I now enter into fights alone, and so I don't wanna be seen. They slip into the shadows. A pack animal no longer has community. So there is a famous lone wolf from Finland. This guy left his pack for some reason and made his way into Sweden. And in Sweden is the Scandinavian gray wolf population that in the 60s was considered basically extinct. In the 80s, there were about 10 of them. One pack that had had to resort to inbreeding and didn't look like it had a good chance of survival. And then all of a sudden, 1991 and into the 90s, there was a boom of the Scandinavian gray wolf population. And when people who apparently researched stuff like this looked into it with genetics and, and trying to figure out how did this happen, the credit went to the lone wolf from Finland. This wolf, for some reason, had decided to re-enter a pack. And when he came in, he mixed up the gene pool and led to a resurgence of the Scandinavian gray wolf population. And that is the story of the lone wolf from Finland. <laughs> the end. I didn't make that up. That, you can research that. And I didn't have a part in it, not a wolf. But I tell you this story. I love this story. The obvious metaphor is the wolf realized his need for community and he entered back into a pack. But what I really love about it that speaks to some of you lone wolves out there is that it was that his entrance into that pack led to a resurgence and life for others. He had something to bring to that pack that led to the saving of their population. And to you lone wolves out there, and I'm not talking about somebody who just goes and lives in a cabin for decades and never sees a person again because they're not here today. I'm talking to a lot of you who may have social lives, but you have decided I'm not letting anybody actually in. I'm not really gonna have community. I'm not really gonna find family. You've already decided I'm not joining a group. I'm not gonna go talk to people about my life. And you may have a very justified reason for that decision. I know that this can be a painful topic for people, that maybe you've been rejected. Maybe you've put yourself out there and felt like it just didn't work or you didn't get the love back that you extended to other people. And so you may be very justified in that decision, but I have to challenge you today that you will not heal that way. Last week, Doug, talking about this concept, he said, you can't give up on community. You have to find it. And he was exactly right. From a psychological perspective, neurologically, looking at your brain chemistry, it's been determined that the only way to get healing from relationship wounds is in relationship. The very thing that you swore off and you said, never again, I'm never letting anybody in again, it's actually only going to happen, your healing will only come if you re-enter the pack. And not only that, you have something to bring. You are the only you. When God created you, he deposited something of himself. You are made in his image. You're the only person in history that has exactly what you have. And this family needs it. 
Lives need it. You have a resurgence to bring into the lives of other people. I believe that. This idea lines up with what God has been saying from the beginning. Genesis chapter two, he creates mankind. There's this guy, Adam, and he's just wandering around by himself, kind of checking the scene like, okay, horse, striped horse. Let's call that one zebra. And Adam looks at him and he's like, this dude needs some friends. God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now remember, this is before the fall of man. This is paradise. There's no sin yet. And yet God sees this tweak that needs to be made. This guy needs community. He needs family. This is how we are intended to live. And when sin enters, it's because the enemy attacks relationship, tries to isolate Adam from Eve and Eve and Adam and the two of them from God. That's when he is most effective is when we are isolated. Probably the most famous story in scripture of the human being failing is King David. And when you read the intro of that story, you find out all of his boys were away fighting a battle, but David stayed home. David was home alone, like the darkest rendition of home alone ever. (laughs) David wasn't setting up traps to keep bad guys out of Jerusalem. He was committing adultery that led to murder. He was alone, isolated, and his son Solomon learned a lesson from that story. He writes in Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. So two years ago, when I was researching into a lot of these uh, effects of isolation and the need for community and making a case for that, and I found the absolute gem of a story about the lone wolf from Finland, I I found some really interesting Uh, research I just want to share with you, starting with the fact that solitary confinement is used as a means of torture. That just making a person be by themselves is a primary way of torturing someone. There was a study on the brains of 57 prisoners of war released in Yugoslavia in 1992 that concluded without sustained social interaction, the human brain may become as impaired as one that has incurred a traumatic physical injury. The late Senator John McCain was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, instead of solitary confinement, it crushes your spirit and weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. And this was a man who was beaten regularly, denied adequate medical treatment for two broken arms, a broken leg, and chronic dysentery, and tortured to the point of having one of those arms broken again, and yet he said of solitary confinement, it crushes your spirit and weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. A U.S. military study of almost 150 naval aviators returned from imprisonment in Vietnam, um, studied them, and many of whom were treated even worse than McCain, reported that they found social isolation to be as torturous and agonizing, if not more, than any physical abuse they had suffered. Terry Anderson, a man who was held prisoner in Lebanon in 1985, said, I would rather have had the worst companion than no companion at all. There's a Dutch psychiatrist, J.H. Vandenberg, who said, if loneliness didn't exist, we could reasonably assume that psychiatric illnesses would not occur either. And the effects that come from isolation uh, are beginning to lose the ability to initiate behavior of any kind, unable to organize life around activity and purpose, chronic apathy, lethargy, depression, despair. In some of these cases, the prisoners, quote, literally stopped behaving and became essentially catatonic prone to irrational anger. 90% of prisoners had difficulties with irrational anger. And I see a lot of those symptoms, maybe not to this extreme level, but all over our culture. 
in a digital age where isolation is becoming more and more the chosen way to live, put a little pandemic on top of that, and we, we have seen the effects of this. I realized two years ago when I was doing this research, my whole premise behind that sermon was trying to convince a lot less of you why you need community, why you should try to get some deep relationships and walk with some people in faith next to you. And a month after that sermon, COVID hit. And I don't think I have to spend the whole day making that case anymore because I think we just got a front row seat to how badly we need each other. How true it is that man is not meant to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. I think the question now is, okay, we get it. We need family, we need each other. We're not meant to live in isolation. How do we find family? How do we do this? This pandemic has kind of socially impaired a lot of us. Like after the, the time period where we had no services and we started having people back in this building, I'd be talking to people in the lobby and be like, wow, you have not seen another person in a while. <laughs> like you could tell, literally. We're talking about the young generation right now and wondering like how will our kids long-term be affected by isolation being their norm growing up? So we acknowledge we need this so much more, but it's kind of like it's more intimidating and challenging now. We're having to relearn, how do we find family? How do we do this? And so today I've got five keys to finding family for you. It's found through Jesus, the greatest of all time at everything, including relationships. There's a great meme that says, nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. <laughs> so... We're gonna look to him. 12 close friends who were all pretty subpar, but they got this concept and the family that those guys started is now billions and billions of people. So I think Jesus knew what he was talking about. Key number one is gonna change your life and blow your mind. You're never gonna see this coming. Number one, Jesus found family. The first key to finding family is to find family. Why do we come to this church? Let's think about this. We're talking about Jesus. This guy could turn water to wine, do miracles, everything he said was the most insightful thing ever. You'd think that his core group of people would have been guys who came to him and just begged him like, let me be your best friend. I just wanna be in your life, will you hang out with me? But if you look at his circle, Jesus was the one who went and found all of them. It wasn't his family members. Some of his family members thought he was crazy. Jesus was the one who was initiating a relationship. Jesus of all people. Jesus was the guy who was walking by a lake and there's Peter and there's Andrew and there's James and there's John and he chats them up. He says, hey, I'm starting a group. You guys should come along with me. And in that moment, Jesus wondered, could it be? And then he knew his wolf pack, it grew by four. I can tell like my very specific generation in here that remembers that speech from The Hangover, which that movie and that speech are so awesome if you have a friend named Doug. So many of you haven't seen it, I'll help you out. <clears throat> Hello, how about that right in? I guess that's why they call it the 11 a.m. <laughs> you guys may not know this, but I consider myself a bit of a loner. I tend to think of myself as a one-man wolf pack. 
But when I ran into Doug at the rec center in Boulder, I knew he was one of my own. <laughs> and my wolf pack, it grew by one. And 13 years ago, when Doug introduced me to Ryan, I thought, wait a second, could it be? And now, I know for sure, I added another guy to my wolf pack. Three of us wolves running around the south in Austin looking for prodigals and barbecue. <laughs> and so today I raise a toast to finding family. Yeah, hold your applause. I just, <laughs> just remixed an entire scene from a movie for you guys. Just, yeah, thanks for keeping me accountable. Let's not have fun. Let's just get back to this. Should have done it at the 9 a.m. They love that kind of stuff. You guys who sleep in, you're so uptight. Mark chapter two, verse 14. As Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, also known as Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Jesus goes to a guy that nobody wants to talk to. He finds him. He initiates relationship. He says, hey, why don't you come join this group that I started? In fact, let's go to your house and have dinner tonight. Let's get to know each other. So if Jesus, of all people, had to put effort in, had to put himself out there, had to talk to somebody he didn't know in the lobby, then we certainly have to. I hear from some of you guys the story of how you got to Red Rocks, and I will never grow tired of those stories. I love them. And there's a common story I hear from some people that is, I used to go to this church, fill in the blank, but I couldn't connect there, couldn't find community. And maybe that's the case. Maybe you exhausted all options, Maybe you tried every single avenue, or maybe there were no avenues to really find family. But when I hear people say that, there's also this part of me that wonders, but did you really try to find family? Or did you expect it to come to you? Because if that's the case, then six months from now, you're gonna be at another church in Austin saying how you couldn't connect at Red Rocks Church. And so I wanna challenge you a bit here. If that's you, I love you, and I'm glad you're here, and you can find family here. And you better be in a group this semester. In fact, you should be leading a group this semester so that you can help be a part of the solution so nobody else can walk out of this place and say, I couldn't connect there, I couldn't find family, there wasn't a group for me. That's why we do groups, that's why we play sports, you can go to grow, you can join a team, you can go to a discover course, you can come to an event, we do so many things, the ball is in your court. You have to find family, you have to step out and initiate, it's not gonna come to you, you've gotta find it. That was true for Jesus and it's true for us. And let me quickly say two things, I wanna speak to the generations in this church. This church has a large demographic of young adults, and I just wanna urge you to keep your doors wide in your social lives. Clicks just naturally happen, especially in churches, and all of a sudden it's like, don't let that person in, don't let that person in, we just kinda have our thing. And we say as a church, we wanna have doors that open wide that anyone and everyone feels welcome here, but that also is on you guys too. Please be that way. Don't let this be a church where people just see circles in a lobby and don't feel welcome. To the older generation, I've talked to some of you who've kind of said like, we love coming here, but should we get involved? Like, do some of these young people want us around? And I just wanna tell you, yes. I have met with leaders, um, cap team captains over the past couple weeks, and the most common thing I'm hearing is I need a mentor. I need somebody with some years on me to help me walk through life. We need you here. We need you not just to find family here, but to form family here, please. Uh, the Lanier's are a great example of this. They started coming here because their daughter 
started coming here and they wanted to support her and check this church out and they have made this their church home. Now, they could have stayed on the sidelines, but they haven't. Gary signed up for Golf League. He said, all right, I'll ride in a cart with some guy I don't know every single week and get to know somebody, put myself out there. Penny's on the grow team. She's hanging out, meeting people, helping you connect at this church and being a part of a team. Gary's gonna teach a Discover course this semester, I just heard. So please, help us form family in this place. Find it and then cultivate it. Number two, one of the keys to cultivating family, Jesus was fully present. This is a lost art, especially in the digital age. I officiated a wedding last week and I'm realizing there's a new tradition at weddings. Before the wedding begins, the officiant comes out and welcomes everybody who's attending and then says, hey, would you please keep your phones in your pockets and your purses for the duration of this ceremony? And that's an ask because mainly there's nothing worse than a, what would have been an awesome wedding photo that's ruined by 200 phones in the air trying to record it because everyone wants to make sure everyone they went to high school with knows on Instagram that I'm cool enough to be at a wedding right now. <laughs> but I also hear in that, like an officiant having to ask people that, the bride and groom being like, hey, friends and family, the most important people to us, um, this is the most important moment of our lives, not to mention the most expensive moment of our lives. Would you not be on your phone the whole time? Would you be present here? Would you experience our wedding instead of trying to film it? An officiant has to ask a group of adults that at a wedding. It's hard to be present. It really is. Doug just challenged our staff, what kind of a leader do you want to be? And my fill in the blank was, I want to be a present leader. I'm not good at this. There's always a task at hand, always doing something, always notification on the phone, trying to have a conversation with one of you in the lobby, going to get interrupted seven times while we're having that conversation. It's just how it is. It's difficult to be present. And I harp on this and I will not stop. I believe that our phones are the number one culprit in why we are so bad at being present in relationships with each other. We are now accessible by everyone and present with no one. We are surrounded by what seems like connection and interaction without actual true community. There's a huge difference between feeling connected and actually being connected. Jesus had the ultimate task at hand. Everybody trying to get his attention. And yet he was able, all through the story, you just see him just being present with individuals. There's a story of the woman with the issue of blood where Jesus is on his way to heal a guy's daughter. And this crowd, he's walking through this crowd with his disciples and there's a woman in the crowd who's had this issue of bleeding for 12 years and she thinks, if I can just get to him and grab his robe, I'll be healed. And so she boldly makes her way and she grabs his robe and he feels it. In the physical and the spiritual, he's like, something just happened. And he stops. And he says to his disciples, somebody just touched me, who was it? And they're all like, what are you talking about? Everybody, we're in a crowd. Who knows, who cares? Jesus cares. Because he knows that somebody's calling out to him. There's an individual in this crowd that needs me right now. And we read Mark chapter five, verse 33. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, loving identity, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. There's a crowd of people around him. He's already got a task at hand. He's carrying the weight of humanity on his shoulders and yet he stops and says, I see you here right in this moment and I'm present with you. Jesus is described all the time as he would make whoever he was talking to feel like the most important person in the world. And I hear people describe that way and I'm jealous. 
I wanna be like that. And so here's the challenge that I have for you that I'm challenging myself with. Focus on what's happening where you are instead of what's happening everywhere you're not. Focus on what's happening where you are instead of what's happening everywhere you're not. Number three, Jesus practiced solitude. Now, wait a second. This guy just told us it's not good for us to be alone, and one of the keys to relationship is solitude, being alone. Let's look to Jesus. Mark chapter one, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This is noted a lot in the Gospels. These guys took note that Jesus would find time to get away from people and be fueled, recharged, filled up, solitude. It's the key. The key to healthy relationships with people is a healthy relationship with God to build that foundation. If you wanna be a healthy husband or wife or mom or dad or friend or neighbor or coworker, coach, teammate, then you gotta have a foundation. You gotta have some fuel to bring into relationships with people. But I think our relationships are so messy and go haywire all the time because all we're giving to people is just whatever strength we've got that day, whatever emotions we're feeling right then. We don't get filled up while the Holy Spirit has every ingredient we need to be amazing in relationships and love people, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all these kinds of things that are not common. And we've got this whole fuel tank available to us in solitude, but we generally bypass that and just go with our own strength. Maybe you've been doing a week now of prayer and fasting and you're like, yes, I'm, I'm hangry. However, I kind of feel like I have a little more than usual. I would guess it's because you're dedicating time to solitude. You're spending time with God and letting him fill you first. The key to healthy relationships with people starts with a healthy relationship with God. And so to all of you fellow extroverts in here, this sounds counterproductive. You're like, no, this year I, said, I made the decision I'm not gonna turn down any invitation. I'm gonna go to everything I get invited to. I'm gonna be everybody's best friend. And here's, here's what I wanna challenge you with. The key to family being established in your life this year is gonna be more about you saying no than yes. It's gonna be about you saying no to quantity in your social life and yes to quality. And to you introverts, you're like, this is my favorite part of the sermon. <laughs> didn't like you, didn't like the sermon. A lot of talking about people, being around people. Let me say to you, first of all, there's nothing wrong with you if you're introverted. And actually, in a lot of ways, you're ahead of a lot of us in realizing how important it is to get fueled and filled up. And maybe you require a little more of that time to have energy for people. Maybe people drain you. But I wanna make sure to challenge you too. That solitude, that needing alone time, this is not an excuse to not enter into finding family. Solitude and isolation are two different things. Let me read you two quotes and I'll leave you alone. Wayne Cordero says, there is a difference between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they are worlds apart. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. Richard Foster says, loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. So get fueled, get filled up, practice solitude, not isolation, solitude. Number four, Jesus wasn't a yes friend. Jesus was notorious for telling people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. There's a famous story of him with his friends Mary and Martha. He goes to their house, they're hosting Jesus. This is a big deal. And Martha's cooking and cleaning and working hard to try to make sure she's a good host while her sister Mary just sits at Jesus' feet, just talks to him. 
And eventually Martha's justifiably frustrated and she comes to Jesus and she's like, hey, you're kind of everybody's life coach now. Um, you wanna coach my sister here, this lazy woman that's just sitting here right now? Maybe give her some pointers on how to like help out, do something. And Jesus is a guest, but he doesn't say the polite thing of like, you're both great. You're just made differently. <laughs> he says, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. If I'm Martha, I'm like, oh, well, thanks for coming, Jesus. Enjoy no dinner. See yourself out. <laughs> just working my tail off in the kitchen. Thanks for that rebuke. But this moment, for Jesus, this is bigger than what's happening in the moment. He's looking at Martha going, you're gonna spend your whole life doing chores for me, not realizing that I just want a relationship with you. That this isn't about everything you can do for me, but I want you to just be with me. And, and he's willing to say it to her. This is the same guy who's just always has to rebuke his disciples, right? James and John, they wanna have Jesus back. These people reject them. They don't want Jesus to come near, and they just go, Jesus, got an idea. Let's call down fire from heaven and blast these people. And Jesus doesn't go, you guys are awesome friends, a little rough around the edges. He rebukes them. He's like, that's not how we operate. That's not what we're gonna do. These are the same guys who stir up all the disciples in this conversation about who's the greatest, who loves Jesus the most, who's his right-hand man, who's gonna go down if he goes down? None of them. And Jesus walks in and he doesn't go, okay, everybody gets a medal. You guys are all my best friend. He says, you guys wanna be great? You need to be, become the least. Humble yourselves. You need to learn a lesson in humility and challenges them and says, when you can figure that out, I'll talk to you guys. I gotta go to a solitary place and pray for a while now. Gotta practice solitude because of you guys. The rich young ruler. Nobody would wanna say this to this guy. He comes to Jesus and goes, what should I do to like live a good life, man? And Jesus says, sell all of your possessions and start walking with me. Not what the guy wanted to hear. We know that because he walks away sad, but Jesus cares enough to say what nobody else will. Hey, money and stuff is an idol in your life and you will never find fulfillment in that stuff. I've got something so much greater for you. Even the woman caught in adultery, this beautiful story of Jesus defending her, saves her life, yet he looks at her after and goes, now leave this life of sin. I'm not gonna be a yes friend who just keeps you doing the same thing over and over, keep you, keeps you in this cycle. I'm gonna tell you that there's something better for you. You gotta leave this behind. It's time for a fresh season in your life. But I think for us, in a my truth culture that we live in, we are so afraid to offend each other. We are so afraid to get in each other's business. And in the spirit of being loving and supportive, we've misplaced our understanding of what encouragement is. I think what we think of as encouragement now is actually called licensing. We are friends who just hand out permission slips. We don't point out blind spots. We just tell our friends, oh yeah, 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 you do you. You do you, finite human being, broken, with a limited time on earth and understanding in one era of history. You know best, you do you. Whatever you're feeling today as an emotional human being, just go ahead, yeah. And I have watched that kind of advice lead friends of mine into divorce and addiction and financial chaos. I've watched it keep people in toxic relationships. Whatever you're feeling, you do you. Jesus was not that kind of friend. He understood what encouragement means. The root of the word encouragement is courage. You're supposed to be putting courage into people to live for something that's bigger and greater, to push them for more, to not settle for what the world will give them, but to tell them this is what Jesus says. You need courage to make the hard right decisions, right? That's the kind of friends we're supposed to be. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We just read this in the Devo this week. 
not giving up on meeting together, as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Doug preached about this a while back, and he asked two questions. Do you spur your friends on towards things like love and good deeds? Do you encourage them? Do you put courage in them to go live the life that Jesus has for them, or do you license them to settle for what they think they want? And the beautiful thing about if you're somebody spurring your friends on is everything's not about you anymore. You're not always the person that has to get your friends around you to just talk about your stuff. You're willing to get in their life and help them and push them and spur them on. But at the same time, are you spurable? Can your friends do that to you? Can they spur you on or do you just want yes friends around you to keep you in the same cycle and the same problems that you're creating for yourself? This is how Jesus spurred. Here's a fact about spurs. Spurs don't hurt the horse if used correctly. Jesus didn't come with condemnation and guilt trips. He always had a foundation of love. Spurs push the horse to be the best that it can be. I'm not telling you right now to go condemn everybody in your life. I'm not gonna be a yes friend. Walk into your coworker's office tomorrow and be like, hey, I sense a struggle with pornography here. I'm not gonna let you keep doing this evil thing. Don't worry, I already told our boss we're all in on this together. We're gonna get you out of here because I'm not a yes friend. Not what I'm saying. <laughs> the family, the people you have relational equity with, those are the people that you are to spur on, to put courage into, and not let them settle for a life that they think they want, but to push them towards the life that Jesus has for them. To have the tough conversations and love people enough that we will risk even offending them to say not what they wanna hear, but what they need to hear. Number five. Jesus didn't expect perfection. Peter's the easy example of this. Peter's the guy who, yeah, Jesus, I'll try to walk on water, falls in. Jesus, I know who you are, you're the Messiah. That's right, Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And then Peter just inserts his own agenda into the whole thing and Jesus says the famous, get behind me, Satan. Peter's the guy who always seems to kind of get it wrong. What's interesting about his relationship with Jesus is Jesus never takes the keys to the kingdom back from Peter. He never demotes him. He doesn't go like, hey, just did your three-year review and not great. <laughs> Especially that time when I got arrested and crucified and you were nowhere to be found. So I'm gonna put somebody a little better as one of my best friends. He never takes the keys from him. And I just feel like we are so fickle with these impossible standards for people in our lives. We expect perfection that Jesus never expected. And the second that somebody offends us, we'll just cancel them. Just cut them out. I'm not having a tough conversation. I'm just done with it. If this thing isn't exactly how I think it should be, then I'm out. All that pastor said one thing I didn't really like in that entire sermon, so I'm gonna blast him in the lobby and leave that church. Oh, that group leader couldn't answer all my theological questions, so I just stopped going. Oh, that person in the group, they kind of rubbed me the wrong way. We're just really different, so I just stopped going to that group. Oh, get coffee with them and hear their backstory and learn why maybe they're a little quirky and different than me. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 it's easier to just stay behind the safety of my social media accounts and blast the world and criticize and critique everything. I'll just do that. Charles Spurgeon said, the easiest work in the world is to find fault. We live in a culture that has a PhD in that. And so my challenge to you is to drop that standard of perfection. I'm not friends with them anymore because we had a disagreement and I just, I just didn't wanna endure and have tough conversations and dig into it. But to be like Jesus in the way we treat people and look at them. Think of the prisoner on the cross. 
This guy had done nothing for Jesus. And he's obviously lived a life where he's gotten himself on a cross. So he's messed up pretty big. And he's dying next to Jesus and he looks at Jesus and he's heard all the clamor and he knows this guy shouldn't be up here. I should. And he looks at Jesus and goes, hey, wherever you're headed, will you remember me? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I never expected perfection from you. That's why I came here, to give you mine. So you can have eternal community with me. Which I don't totally understand. If I was God, we would drive me nuts. Forever sounds like a long time, right, with us? But this is our God, a relational God who didn't expect perfection from us. That's why he sent his son. And so I would challenge you with what Hebrews says, let us not give up on meeting together as some of you are prone to do, to stick in friendships and relationships, to not expect perfection, that everyone's gonna be exactly how you think they should be. And I'll make the balancing statement that there are endings for things. Sometimes breaking up is the most loving thing you can do. Sometimes you need to run from a relationship. Sometimes you change jobs, you move cities, you, go, you need to go to a new church. There are seasons for those things. And if God has spoken that to you, then have confidence and make that decision. I just feel like the more common story is, didn't like it, canceled it. And the beauty that will come when you start to drop that standard of perfection for other people is you'll actually be able to drop it off yourself too. And you'll level the playing field in friendships and start to say things like, hey, I'm sorry. Hey, I was wrong. Hey, I'll go first here and kind of share how I was really feeling in that moment. And all of a sudden, you're actually having a human-to-human -human relationship with the foundation of love and grace like Jesus, looking at people like he did, knowing that we're broken and we need him and we need a loving family to constantly remind us of his grace and his love for us, that he didn't expect perfection from us, but he gave his to us. So those are the five keys. There's hundreds of them. And I wanna close out just by sharing a little personal of my life and if you've been around for a little while, you've heard us talk about our group, our crew that formed in college for Doug Ryan and I. And I think what has happened maybe sometimes in our church is that people hear kind of our story and how we're so passionate about community and how it saved our lives and changed our lives and kind of think, well, you guys had that lightning strike friendship group. Like you guys just all clicked and you were unified under the vision of planning a church and you're all exactly the same person. And so you had that thing just happen to you Maybe that's the Instagram version of our story. And I just wanna clue you into the real version of how we have fought to find family with each other, to hopefully help equip you. The group of guys that we walked into, the, the guys who came to find family and started this group, and then us deciding we're gonna find it, and we're gonna go, and then we're gonna go again. Very different people. Even Doug Ryan and I, we may seem like carbon copies of each other with different lengths of hair, but we are not. <laughs> we are extremely different in a lot of ways. And as we started journeying through life and faith together, we rubbed each other the wrong way. We'd get mad at each other, would lie to each other, hide things from each other, have to apologize to each other, try not to apologize to each other. Doug Ryan and I were roommates in college, and so when you live with somebody, you know even more of the things that bother you about them, right? You're like, oh yeah, every time you put a snack out, it's gone in five minutes if you don't watch it because the Weckman brothers will just eat it all. All these little things that just kind of add up. We drove each other nuts and then we decided to go spend a year traveling abroad, working with organizations in other countries, literally living basically in the same room together for a year, which again sounds glamorous, was not, especially for our friendships. It was like things were just boiling between us. 
We were competitive with each other when it came to ministry, which is gross. We'd get mad at each other. We'd just like kind of stonewall each other and not talk to each other and offend each other and all the kind of stuff that happens in friendships. And we had this kind of breaking point where I think we realized, okay, not only do we have to live in the same room for a lot more months, but we have dreams of like planning a church maybe one day and building the kingdom together. And if we're really gonna do that, then we've gotta learn to give each other the benefit of the doubt. We've gotta make a choice because we can stay friends and hold each other at an arm's distance or we can become family. Now, Doug and Ryan were born family, so they didn't have a choice in that. However, family like we're talking about is deeper than just being born from the same parents. So we made this decision. Okay, well, if we're gonna be family, what does that mean? Well, everyone as a human being, your desire is to be fully known and fully loved. We all wanna be fully loved, but we fear being fully known. We all expected that from each other. You should perfectly have my back and perfectly give me the benefit of the doubt and perfectly love me. But we weren't fully known. So we just started devoting time to knowing everything we could. Telling each other our real life stories. Childhood, school, college, when we'd met, our faith journey. Things that had happened to us, things that were painful, things that we had never told another human, never spoken out loud. Failures, ways we had hurt people, deep regrets we carried, insecurities, just laying it all out on the table. And then we'd all come back together and do it again. And we'd all come back together and do it again, eventually to the point where we were kind of talking in the present day. Like, hey bro, last week when I was kind of rude to you guys, I was just actually honestly insecure because I'm jealous of you in this way. Hey, I'm really sorry I reacted that, like that this morning. I was kind of hangry, trying to fast. It's not going well. <laughs> Being honest with each other, like really, really honest. And as we built this transparency, it kind of all culminated this one night. We were in Australia and we were walking to the University of New South Wales to this university bar and having one of those kinds of conversations on the way of like what was going on right then. Some painful stuff, some stuff that needed to be just brought to the light, encouraging each other. And we got there and we stood around this table with a couple Australian sodas and we, we cheersed each other. And it felt like this moment where we were kind of finally for the first time looking at each other like, I really actually know you now and I love you. I know everything about you and I don't have judgment anymore. I don't expect perfection anymore. Even the things that really bug me about you, I kind of understand now why you are that way. You're family to me. And so I'm gonna be present with you. And I'm gonna get healthy in my relationship with God to be a good friend to you. I'm gonna go pray. I've, done, I've prayed this prayer a lot. God, help me to love Doug and Ryan the way that you do. It's not easy every day. We said we're not gonna be yes friends. We're not gonna hide anything and we're gonna call each other. We're gonna spur each other on put courage into each other because there's more in you than you even know about yourself and I can see it now. And we dropped this perfection off of each other and ourselves and it felt like that night, the concrete God was pouring of our friendship just set. And he was like, okay, now I can build on top of this. Now you guys have finally humbled yourself enough to be fully known and to try to fully love each other as best you can and now I can build with this. And I tell you a little of our backstory and all of the painstaking trials and all the things we went through and, and disagreements and all this kind of stuff. Not to brag to you that I've got this three-man wolf pack, but to encourage you that this is possible. As a very imperfect friend with some very imperfect friends, this is possible. 
but the ball's in your court. You've gotta find it. You've gotta be present with people. You've gotta practice solitude. Don't be that yes friend. Start spurring the people in your life on and stop expecting perfection that Jesus didn't. Would you guys stand to your feet? I wanna pray for you right now that this would be the year that God establishes family, that he equips you and motivates and empowers you to find it, to deepen it. So Jesus, thank you that we are a family. And I just pray right now for the lone wolves out there, God, that you would speak and call them to come back to the pack, as scary as it might sound. Would you put inspiration inside of them to know that they have something to bring that will bring resurgence into the lives of others just like that lone wolf in Finland. I pray for relationships that are in here that are in tough places, God, that you would deepen those, that people would uh, be equipped to love each other, to humble ourselves, to be fully known and fully loved. I pray that we would look back on 2022 and have story after story after story of people saying that was the year that God established family in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.